0: Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm your host, Jim Oliver. And last week we ended part one of our discussion with Bob Murphy like this. But if we think about, it, you know, that, that's what we're trying to do in infinite banking, like you said, is not contribute to the problem. So if 10% of wealth in the United States was held in IBC instead of banks, what would it do to the Fed and the banking system in your opinion? Today, we're going to go ahead and kick off part two and continue our conversation with Bob Murphy. In the rest of this interview, you're going to get some great insights to what's happening in our economy and what's happening uh, and what things you can do to understand, because like Nelson used to say, um, if you understand what's happening, you'll know what to do.
1: Well, (laughs) it's funny you said that thing about, you're right. I was trying to think when you were talking there, Jim, about you know, could I come up with any anecdotes? Cause, <laughs> Cause yeah, that would happen a lot. The only one I can re, sort of remember is, you know, I asked Nelson, we'd be talking about some issue and he would say, well, Bob, when, when you start forestry school, the first thing they teach you is classification. And and he would go into, and I was like, what are you talking? About? And then <laughs> and he was talking about like the importance of class of like when you classify trees, you know, you put them, it's based on their major characteristics, not their minor characteristics. And that's how you decide like, which group does this one go to? You know what I mean? Like these tr- trees of all these different attributes. And so when you decide which trees are more similar to each other, you got to look at their major characteristics, not some, you know, incidental thing. Yeah. And so that is, so that's where he was, and where he was going was, you know, hit the way he was looking at, at what lo- a dividend paying whole life insurance policy was um, in terms of, you know, what, what functions does it perform? So anyway, uh, because of his his essential insight was he was saying your need for finance while you're alive is much more significant than your need for death benefit after you're gone. Right. And so, right. so that's, you know, that's where he, that's where he was coming from. But in, in the beginning, when he was going down that path, you didn't know, like, did you hear my question? Wait, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I think you're right, Jim. And it's in, it, it, in terms of, cause cause what happens is, the in the Austrian theory of what causes the business cycle, it's that there's a sense in which it's not just the Fed that can create money just by buying assets, but even commercial banks, when they grant loans to people, um, the way the modern system is set up, there's a legitimate sense in which they are creating money out of thin air. Right. That the, the bank um, you know, just real simple example. Someone comes has a thousand dollars in cash, you know, green pieces of paper, pictures of dead presidents gives it to the banker. They put it in the vault, credit that guy's checking account with a thousand dollars. So he's walking around town thinking, oh, I got a thousand dollars in my checking account now. But then if the bank takes 900 of that, let's say, and lends it out to somebody else, now that person thinks, oh, I have $900 now that I can spend because the bank just lent it to me. And so, but the first guy doesn't think he only has a hundred now. He still thinks he has a thousand. So in terms of the community and how much money does everybody think He or she has add up all those numbers. There is a quite legitimate sense in which the bank loan just made the money in the community go up by nine hundred dollars. And so, at this, you know, the national scale, those numbers get big. And so, that's part of the Austrian theory of the business cycle that when banks feel optimistic and want to promote, you know, what, what he calls credit expansion, they're inflating the money supply. And since that, and so the banks are lending out more money, it's pushing down interest rates. But consumers haven't saved more. So it's like business people are getting cheap loans and it seems like there's more credit available to go do investments, but yet society hasn't saved more. So the amount of real resources hasn't gone up. So how could it possibly be that businesses now have more funds with which to engage in long-term investment? And so that's that's the problem in the Austrian approach. And so, yes, you if if people, when they have their daughter getting married or they got to buy a new car or something if they instead borrow against their life insurance policy, because life insurance companies don't have that power, the way right. that the, the customs are and the banking regulations and so forth right now. Life insurance company, you take out a policy loan, they have to have the money first. It's not just that if they give you an $800 policy loan, in the act of doing that, they create the $800. And so you know, they have to have the money first to be able to lend it to you. And so that's a huge difference. And so that's why you're not contributing to the problem. So the more people that do that, just you know, you're mitigating it. But also I think it's partly like a symbolic thing that if enough people start doing because right now everybody knows Wall Street's a roller coaster and they just and they don't like the fact that, gee, if I borrow money from a bank to like help with my business, that I'm I'm on the hook. And if things go south, the bank can take everything. But what else can I do? You know, that's kind of the mentality. So the more people that are out here doing this other thing, that the gurus are telling them is stupid, and oh, everyone knows, you know, whole life's a, is a ripoff. You don't want to put your money. Th- the more people who are doing it and who are savvy and are doing well with it, the more it's like just an obvious counterexample to this paradigm. And so I don't know if there's some magic number, but certainly, yeah, if 10% were doing it, people couldn't ignore that anymore. And I think everybody would start rushing for the exits.
0: Right, right. So, you know, if so, putting money in the IBC means that the money supply shrinks, right?
1: Uh, I guess it depends what the scenario is, but it certainly it means you're not contributing to making a supply yeah. increase.
0: The Fed so loses it, some control of that money.
1: Right. So yeah. Right. So the money doesn't disappear. Yeah. The, the ability of the banking system to expand the money supply is is negated somewhat. So I don't. Yeah. Again, yeah. it depends what time. But yes. Yeah. It, it's also true if this is what you mean. If you if you have a debt, you know, if you owe money to the bank, like a mortgage or something, and you pay that off. And then you're not reborrowing, then yes, that is shrinking the money supply. You know, j- just like you you borrowing from a bank expands the money supply, you paying a bank back contracts the money supply. So that's true.
0: Right, right. Um, so you know, when I think about, um, you know, by the way, the the book, if if anybody in the audience hasn't read A Case for IBC, um, which is I, I believe your most recent book the N and I that the N and I wrote to th- together. Right. I mean, is that, uh, there's nothing after that, that I have missed somehow.
1: Right. And, and just to clarify, it's the case for IBC the case for IBC. We were full right. of ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, would have been yeah, more i my say a case, but no, this was the case. Right. Okay.
0: <laughs> right. Right. No, good point. Good point. Um, is uh, you know, you mentioned Carlos, I really like Carlos's business cycle in, in uh, that. And I've Carlos already knows this, but I've, I've, uh, I, I don't like to say I stole it, but I modeled it and and I use it a lot with business owners explaining infinite banking, because again, what Nelson taught us is, is first, we got to understand the problem before we can understand the solution and why we need the solution. So, um, you know, the, 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 when we, when we look at all of this, this is not what we're taught in school. This is not what we're, I mean, we are, we are taught what i said earlier and what you said earlier is to build a retirement fund and then again let wall street control that while we're you know playing golf in florida or arizona and then you know hope every day that we're not losing losing money but with the with covid and some of the things that you've said and about like what they've done just and i mean i had no idea about that by the way that the amount of money Uh, through COVID. I mean, it totally makes sense. But when we think about all of the answers, we, you know, we can only do what we can do, what we can control. And, um, you know, going back to uh, gold and crypto and IBC, you know, there's a relationship there um, of trying to get back control of our money. Um, You know, does that, I mean, I mean, I guess there's, a, is there a question in there, Bob? That's a good, that's probably a good, uh, <laughs> is, uh, how do you see that? Like, I mean, did that make sense? What I just said?
1: Yeah, I think so. So yes, I mean, the reason people are like the reason gold's hitting record highs and Bitcoin zoomed up in the past year, you know, is because of what the feds and other central banks have been doing that people realize, uh oh, they're printing. you know, this is, this is now the playbook. This is whenever there's a crisis. The central banks around the world are just going to create gobs of new money, and so people think that that's bullish for hard assets. Uh, you know, it's particularly gold and silver and, and Bitcoin in the long run. So I think that's you know it's a pretty straightforward explanation as to what's driving that. It, and yes, in terms of fun, more fundamentally, like like why those assets and not so much you know real estate in Australia. And I think there is something that you know gold and silver literally used to be the money. Yep. You know back uh, not that long ago. And there, you know, there's reasons for that, you know, in terms of their properties and things that they were suitable, you know, the ideal candidates for a commodity based money. And so, and, and now Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies obviously have the promise of, you know, leveraging the new the new technologies we have available that, and there's a sense in which Bitcoin, at least with its inbuilt limit as to how many there can be, uh, is even harder, if you will, than gold or silver. Because in the long run, at some point, you know, humans are going to be able to go and get gold asteroids and, and mine them. And right. so even this, this quantity of gold available to humanity at some point is going to be pretty elastic. And so maybe gold at some point won't actually work very well anymore as a money because it'll just be too, too available. Whereas something like Bitcoin or you know, something that succeeds it, they, you have the inbuilt scarcity that's mathematically guaranteed. And right. so, um, so you know, those are some differences, different properties of them. But that's that's really the the issue, and that's the fundamental flaw with government fiat currencies like the dollar or the euro or the British pound. Is now because they've severed the link to gold, there's nothing stopping that. Like I said, in the last three months, the Fed has created three trillion new dollars just by pressing some keys. And so that, you know, when you're wondering what, you know, in terms of supply and demand and the price of the dollar, well, if they can create, if the supply can be expanded that easily, that's why investors are afraid of it. So, yes, yeah, So what do you do in that environment? You want to get out of it. You want to have an alternative. You want to get a different paradigm. And, and that's partly what people are doing. Yes. What so, we're saying is with IBC, that's a way you can sort of secede from the conventional banking system. So,
0: yeah, it, it, it. Exactly. I mean, Bob. History shows that virtually all currencies eventually fail. Correct.
1: Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of the the currencies. Fiat currencies, yes, have failed. I mean, there's there's some that technically haven't yet. I mean, I guess it's like saying history shows every human being has died, and you could say, well, no, some of us are still alive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so but yeah, clearly yes there to me that there's plenty that have failed and uh, even ones that are like relatively well managed compared to their peers like the US dollar you know that's lost something like 98% of its purchasing power since the formation of the Federal Reserve so even the fiat currencies that people point to as a success that are issued by political institutions are actually abysmal compared to like the days of the gold standard when you could go a hundred years, and the dollars' purchasing power would be roughly constant over that long stretch
0: right, so you know that's that's something that you know i we could probably go on for a long time on the on the uh the gold standard and being taken off the gold standard, but one of the things with cryptocurrency and and, and I want you to just maybe give a just a like i, I love the way that you said uh it earlier a dumb down uh overview of that um because uh you know uh and not to get us off track but I bought my eleven-year-old. Um, I don't know how many books. I, I think ten Tuttle Twins might have been twelve Tuttle Twins books. And uh, for, if anybody's not familiar with the Tuttle Twins books, they're they're excellent. I probably have Connor. Uh, I think his last name is pronounced Boyack on the um, on the on the show because I love the way that these things are written. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of adults out there that if some of this stuff just seems confusing. I'm telling you, grab the Tuttle Twins books. Just swallow your pride. No, I don't care if it's a kids' book. It's it's a simple illustration of some concepts that every American really needs to know.
1: And uh, are you familiar with those books, Bob? I know who Connor is. And I know of the books, but I, I actually have not read any of them. Like you know, in terms of getting them. Oh no, but I, I do know know the series. Yes, and I'm sure it's excellent because I know so- I know Connor.
0: Okay. So yeah, uh, you know, my eleven year old, she got into a little bit of the, the doghouse um yesterday and uh and so we had an electronics break. And I said, Okay, you got twelve books, so I'm not even gonna tell you which one you you know, start wherever you want to start. And she read four of them, so you can tell they're not you know, they're not huge or real thick books, but uh she read four of them in the morning and uh um uh, she started to get herself out of the doghouse because I guess I'm kind of a softy, but um I, I would definitely recommend those books. It, the, the talk, just an overview of the gold standard, because, uh, you know, here's one thing that you said earlier, and I had a friend one time, he said, well, Jim, I'm buying this house up on the Hill. Um, I'm buying only gold and silver. And, um, if anybody tries to get it, I've got plenty of guns. And I said, well, yeah, you don't realize, it's not your neighbors that are going to be coming to get it. It's the government. So, um, I don't care how many guns you have because they've got bigger ones and more of them. So uh, just talk a little bit about the, the gold standard and, 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 cause you know, that, the like bit, uh, Bitcoin is the ultimate in scarcity. There's only so many Bitcoin that there, there are ever going to be. And so the value can't be, uh you know, it can't with, with Bitcoin you, or what they're doing with the, with the, uh, with fiat currency, you can't do with Bitcoin. So,
1: Maybe talk about how we kind of went off the rails there. Okay, sure. And if if people want to Google, I literally just had something come out last week. Uh, the title is "A Brief History of the Gold Standard" with a focus on the United States. So if you just Google my name, Robert Murphy, and you know a brief history of the gold standard, you'll probably find it. So I have this. It's about a twenty-page thing. We'll put them in but, the show notes too. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I'll, yeah. So yeah, I'll send this to you, Jim. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's re- it's really fascinating and something that I didn't fully understand either. So it. From when you know the the federal constitution was ratified and we had the modern United States government, up through the Civil War, so like the 1790s through 1861, the federal government did not issue paper currency. All right, what what it did was coin money. If you go look at the Constitution, when it gives you know enumerates the powers of the federal government, it says to coin money. Like so, that's what the the founding fathers thought they were doing. They they weren't giving a printing press to the feds, they were saying, you get to define like the gold and silver content of the US dollar so that when you make coins that have a certain amount of gold or silver, in them, like, you know, that that's what they were, they were giving them the power to do. That's what they thought the money was. And they even had an explicit clause in there saying this US states are forbidden from making anything except gold and silver coin legal tender for payment of debts. And, and the reason for that was they had, you know, they'd studied history, but also they had just come off the you know the war for American independence, where the Continental Congress had been issuing what they called the Continental currency, which was you know paper money, and that li- gave rise to the phrase "not worth a continental." That some of your listeners might have heard that phrase. That's what they were talking about because they printed so much of this stuff that you know its value collapsed, and therefore everyone realized, yeah, paper money is not to be trusted. So in the early days of the U.S., Americans were walking around with gold and silver. Coins in their pockets, you know the the silver coins were for things like a dollar, half dollar a quarter, stuff like that. And the goal was like ten dollar and twenty dollar pieces. And that's how they did their purchases. Um, and it was suspended you know during the Civil War they went off it. and so during crises and wars, they might go off of it. But all the major governments of the world, that's what it was. Like so the British pound, you know it's the what's called this the pound sterling. well, just think about those terms. It's because originally it was literally a pound of silver. That's you know that's why they call it pound sterling. Whereas now that's just you know some name people don't think about. So that's what the money used to be, and then it was only gradually that governments sort of weaned people off of that. So in the U.S., the big thing was in uh, 1933, FDR comes in, he's newly inaugurated, and then there was a run on the banks. And so their, their gold reserves were getting drained because at this point, the U S dollar was still backed up by gold. People still thought of, you know, the dollar was defined literally in terms of gold content and that they were going to run out. And so what did FDR do, he declared a banking holiday and then a little bit later, issued an executive order saying all americans have to turn in their gold except for you know some like collector's items and things like that but any monetary gold gold you're holding because of its role as serving as money or else you were going to get a ten thousand dollar fine and or a prison sentence all right so i i really want to stress this now with like judy shelton when her nomination people make fun of the gold standard and they'll say stuff like oh america tried the gold standard but you know in the midst of the great depression america abandoned it because it was America didn't abandon the gold standard. The federal government literally stole everyone's gold at gunpoint. That's what happened. So it's like if you get mugged, it's not that you abandon your cash. You know, it was taken from you because people were threatening you. So that's what happened when Americans turned in their gold in 1933. It was so bad. Not only did they have to turn in their gold, you couldn't even write a contract saying, hey, I'm going to you know, buy this asset from you next year. And then you're going to pay me in terms of, you know, whatever the world gold prices will consult a year from now. And you're going to pay me in dollars, the equivalent of 10 ounces of gold. Cause that would be one way of, you know, effectively doing a gold transfer, even though strictly speaking, it wasn't that. Do- they, that was ruled illegal. Like that wasn't an enforceable contract. You couldn't have gold clauses in there. That's how bad it was. So that's what they did. Um, and then, you know, there was the so-called Bretton Woods Agreement. Just to really quickly give you the history of what happened, the U.S. After World War II, there was so-called Bretton Woods arrangement where all the central banks of the world defined their currencies in terms of U.S. dollars. Like you know, the French franc, British pound, German mark were defined in terms of how many dollars to our currency. But ultimately, the dollar was still redeemable for gold at thirty-five dollars an ounce, and so still the whole world system was loosely tied to gold, but it was just a pale shadow. Of what it had been during the heyday of the gold standard before World War I. And then, even that, because of the, you know, LBJ's war on so called war on poverty, the Vietnam War, the US government was just printing too many dollars. Eventually, like France, you know, Charles de Gaulle blinked, said, Hey, we we don't like just piling up these claims on dollars. How about you guys give us some of the gold that you say technically we can redeem it anytime we want? And then, once countries started doing that, they had to throw in the towel. And in 71, Richard Nixon just said finally, you know what, we're we're closing the gold window. And even there, it was completely fraudulent. Nixon assured people in his address to the nation when he explained to them what he was doing in terms of suspending the dollars redeemability in gold. He said, Don't worry, this is a temporary measure, and don't worry that this is gonna lead to inflation. This will actually promote stability. Well, wow. just think through of the decade of the nineteen seventies. Do you think that it, it ensured price stability and that the U.S. dollar strength was, you know, bolstered by severing the tie. No, obviously that was the worst peacetime inflation that they'd had. So, you know, that's some of the, the, the story. And so from 1971 onward, all the major currencies of the world have been untethered. It's just been relying upon the judgment of politicians and their, you know, appointed bureaucrats with printing presses. I mean, you wouldn't give a mob boss the ability to legally create hundred dollar bills. Right, that wouldn't be a good idea. But yet you're going to give it to you know Nancy Pelosi. You know that doesn't make any sense. And yet that's what we've that's what we've done. Or rather, economists that Nancy Pelosi and her crew you know appoint or, right. or approve of. You know that, So that's anyway. You, you see the idea.
0: So you know the the one thing I I just sit and think about Bob when you're when when you were explaining that is how again, going back to Nelson's quote, if you know what's happening, you'll know what to do. If anybody would listen to that about what's happened and say, I think the best place for my money is in a qualified plan, meaning the government controls the rules of your money in this plan. And where Wall Street, you know, and they talk about mob bosses. I mean, they, they, if that's where I should put my money. That's where I should put all of my money and I should wait for 20, 30, 40 years to use it. I mean, if if anybody has uh, an argument that wants to, you know, sing the praises of government programs, uh, you know, Nelson used to say there's not one government progr- program that's ever succeeded and he had a list of them. Um, but it's 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 just it's it's interesting. So that just tells us that the need for infinite banking and the need to educate yourself on really what's happening out there. And uh, we're going to have the resources that Bob mentioned in the show notes um, audience. And so please, uh, you know, hit those links and listen to the um, Bob has a great podcast to the Laura Murphy report. Um, and there's also a hard copy that I read every month when it comes out. Um, but you know, when I think about infinite banking, so many times people are comparing infinite banking to a 401k or to something like, uh, or to an investment. And, you know, that always drove Nelson crazy that, you know, that people just couldn't get it. They were trying to look at rates and things like that, but what in your, in your, uh, time with infinite banking, what are like one, two or three things that you think people get wrong about infinite banking?
1: Okay. Um, So I guess one thing is people say that, you know, you're, you're borrowing money out of your bank. Right. And, and so I think just for people to make sure they understand exactly the mechanics of what's happening under the hood, the idea is you're, you're funding this life, this permanent life insurance policy, namely a whole life policy. And so the cash surrender value is growing and then you're borrowing money from the life insurance company with your, surrender cash value as the collateral. So you're not taking money out of your policy. It's like a loan on the side, as it were, with your policy serving as the collateral. So that's just one uh, little little tweak. Um, I guess another one is you you hear a lot of times critics will say things like, oh, um, do you know that these life insurance companies, yeah, you're building the cash value, and you're using it as an asset, but you know that when you die, you just get the death benefit and the life insurance company keeps the cash value. Uh, that's right. something they don't tell you. And that one, like you have to just ponder the magnificence of it because it's so fundamentally misunderstands what's going on, like that kind of mindset. So the, the cash surrender value is like the anticipation. It's, it's what the life insurance company would pay you to walk away early from the policy. So of course, you know, so, so the, the everything driving all this is the death benefit right? Because it's a life insurance policy. So what, you know, what is it in its essence? It's saying you pay us premiums. And if you die, then we pay a death benefit to the beneficiary you name that boom. That's what it is in its essence. And so, but as you're funding this thing over time, the the older you get actuarially, the more likely you are to die. And so the, you know, when the actuaries are looking at this policy that's in force, it becomes a bigger and bigger liability to the life insurance company as the clock runs because you're getting closer to death, just statistically speaking, every time you, you know, every, every premium payment you make. And so that's why the life insurance company would be willing to pay you more and more to surrender the policy, the older you get, because now it's a bigger and bigger liability. So the cash surrender value grows over time, but it's always less than the death benefit because all it's doing is it's saying, if you want to get like a spot payment now in an, you know, an early version of the death benefit while you're still alive, that's kind of what it is. And so, of course, if you happen to die, they're going to give you the death benefit. That's the thing driving it. They wouldn't give you the cash value on top of that. That wouldn't make any sense. That's misunderstanding right. what it is. The analogy I use, Jim, is to say, when you, if you have a, a regular mortgage on a house, there's a sense in which every mortgage payment you make, you're building equity in the house, right? Because the lien against your property is shrinking. And so, if it's a $300,000 house, once you make that final payment, you could say, oh, I had 300,000 in equity in my house. You'd go get the deed from the bank. You wouldn't then say, and now please give me a check for 300,000 because that's my equity. And it's like, right. no, the, the deed, that's what it is. <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of like the, the, the mistake there. Um, yeah. yeah, so I mean, to me, those are, those are some of the big okay. misconceptions. I guess the, the last one would be when people try to do like a, uh, like a head-to-head comparison and they say, oh, like buy term and invest the difference. And they'll look at the performance of a mutual fund over a certain time period and the internal rate of growth on a whole life policy as if those are apples to apples and then say, oh, see, you'd be silly to put your money. When it's like, for one thing, there's the guarantees, right? right? A whole life policy, the cash value is guaranteed to grow. And then if it does better than that, you know, you get, but, but you know, your mutual fund, especially if it's heavily in equities, there's no floor built. in. it's not that once it gets above a certain number, it can't go down. You know, right. so that's one major difference there showing why these are this is a silly comparison. And the other thing is it's life insurance. So if you get hit by a bus, you get a huge payoff. And the rate of return, you know, based on your premium payments to that point might be three thousand percent. Right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. so that's part of what's I'm just saying. It you know, right there, I didn't just prove a whole life policy is a great thing to put your money in, which is those remarks I made, but it's showing these like glib ten minute breakdowns of it to try to blow it up are just the people either don't know what they're talking about or they're misleading their, their listeners on purpose.
0: Yep. They're misleading. I mean, I, I believe because, you know, the buy term invest the difference, you know, that fed the universal life craze for the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And now we have, you know, we've gone through, we've had a failure of the universal life. Policies. We've had the failure of the variable universal life policies. We've had the failure of the guaranteed universal life policies. That that was the insurance companies decided they didn't they, they didn't like that word guaranteed. And then now we have the index universal life policies. And it's all by term invest the difference within the life insurance wrapper. And it's what people get wrong is they focus. Infinite banking isn't about the life insurance contract. Yeah, it has to be structured properly and it, and it's structured properly inside the whole life in contract, so that we have guarantees because we don't need to take risk in the insurance contract. And so, because we don't need to, then why would we, because then we, then failure becomes an option in our, in our banking system, which we don't want to happen. But, you know, th- in my 32 years in the wealth building business is I see people, they're easy to sell because, they're they are based on projections. And, you know, if I could project that dividends were going to be 12%, well, you know what, I'd sell a lot more insurance if I'm an insurance salesman. So when I can project 7% inside of an IUL, yeah, it's easy to sell. But, but that's really not what Nelson was talking about with infinite banking. He was talking about controlling, like you said, the banking function in your life, not that it's an actual bank. And he used to use, I love when he would use on the side of the road, when they plow the road, what do you, what there's a, there's snow on the side of the road. What do you call that? You know, it's a snow bank, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but, um, you know, that I think that's where people get a lot of things wrong. But one of the things that we have to do is we have to think Nelson was famous again for saying that Bob and, and it, the way that we think is we have to educate ourselves and listen to podcasts and read papers and books and then think, well, what do we think of that? Do we understand it? And once we understand it, you know, we either agree with it or disagree with it, or we form our opinion, but forming an opinion without knowledge, uh, I'm sure there's a quote about that somewhere, but it's not very smart is 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 the way that I would say, I'm obviously not a wordsmith, but, uh, all right. Well, I could talk to you all day long, Bob, and, and, and I really appreciate the time if people were out there and they just want to learn, you know, um, obviously they want to learn about infinite banking. I would tell them that you start with becoming your own banker. Um, the, the second book that I read was how privatized banking really works. And, and, and then if you're a business owner and you don't read the case for IBC, then you're missing out. But, if if you think about like some of the basic books and Nelson and, and not, uh, you guys have it on the Nelson Nash Institute website. So uh, a great, great reading list. And if anybody wants to go to infinite banking.org and, uh, look at the, you will not find a better, uh, if you read all of the books on that site, you were going to be, you're going to know what's going on. But what, if you were just going to start from the basics, Bob, what's, what's one or two or three books that you would recommend everybody read to understand some of these concepts.
1: Okay, yeah. Well, you hit all the basics in terms of the standard references that I would say for understanding IBC directly. But in terms of broader economics stuff, um, it, it, I guess it depends where you're, what your background is. But for you know a, a middle-aged person or older, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson is a very simple read that you could bang out probably in two or three sittings but it's, it's very important. Like if you've never read these things, you know, just explain the basic, you know, understanding how to think like an economist, I think it's a great thing, but sort of like you were saying with the Tuttle Twins stuff, my book called the Less- lessons for the young economist, I wrote it for a junior high level reader, Jim, but for adults who have never got a good economics class in, in their lives, it's also, I think, you know, very simple, but also important. So, um, I would say if people wanted something like that, they could they could look at that. Um, maybe Murray Rothbard's what has government done to our money that that it, it's a mix of like the theory and the history, you know just enough theory so you understand how to think about this stuff, but then the history to show you know that this wasn't just a bunch of innocent misfortunes like there there really is uh, you know powerful people who systematically over time wrested control of the financial sector away from regular people and, and now you know it's in the hands of a small number. And so that's, you know, it, so the people who are worried about the 1% and whatnot, they have terrible solutions. Like you know, a lot of them are, are Marxist, so they don't, they don't understand economics, but they're not wrong for thinking the system's rigged. The problem is just, you know, they think it's capitalism per se when they don't really know it's, it's powerful people who may be capitalist, but go into the state and getting, you know, political privileges and the fed picking winners and losers and things like that. So just to understand how that happened, and to realize it doesn't need to be this way. So you need to learn some history. So like I say, if you want an intro to that, that then will give you more reading. If you want to pursue it, Uh, Rothbard's what has government done to our money? is a real quick read that you can just get the PDF by Googling it. You don't even have to buy it.
0: Oh, great. And we'll put those, uh, we'll put those, uh, those references in the show notes and you guys uh, audience, uh, you know, Bob. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us. And uh, like I said, I hopefully we can have you back on. And and uh, I'll get questions from the audience, and maybe we'll attack those next time or something. But uh, thank you for all the work that you do with the Nelson Nash Institute. I think it's uh, it's super important. And you guys have a great crew there. And anything that we can do to to uh, further Nelson Nash's legacy and just the help that you know he was not only. Uh, just a, a gentleman, but he was such a great mentor, and he he'd give you a Bible lesson for forty-five minutes to an hour, just as fast as he would a, a lesson in IBC or Austrian economics, and and all of them would be excellent and on point.
1: Oh yeah, thank you for those kind words, Jim, and you know, thanks for doing what you're doing, and just yeah, this this really is because it you know I I'm made a career out of studying money and banking and economics, and just because I thought it was fascinating, but now. It really is important that regular people understand at least the basics of this stuff because they are getting ripped off and there's a solution, right? It may be one thing if it was just we were lamenting something that couldn't be helped, but there's ways that people can, as Nelson said, take the, put the banking function back at the you and me level. Yep,
0: absolutely. That's a great place to, to stop it. Audience, thank you so much. The herd is getting bigger. You've got to break away. Break away from the herd. The herd only ends one way and it's not good. Until next time, I'm your host, Jim Oliver. Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Jim. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.